you know, I was sitting on this uh, cushion here. It's a pretty uncomfortable one. And uh, I was noticing that my body's kind of tilting to the side. And it isn't, wasn't really a problem. It's not that uncomfortable. It's, I'm not in pain, but I'm just tilting. And I thought, it really wasn't a problem. It's just that I wanted to be this way, and I was this way. <laughs> and I really thought that was a great metaphor kind of for life that, that you know, most of my problem is, is you know, life's okay, but it's kind of tilting this way. <laughs> I want it tilting this way. And so it was really uh, kind of a good teaching. Maybe that's why they put this up here <laughs> as a teaching. So. I mean, we have to be careful, actually, about that because sometimes, you know, if life's tilting a certain way, it really isn't okay. It's really a lot of suffering, you know, if we're in intense pain or so... We want to honor that there really is parts of life that are just hard. Um, And, um, well, so maybe I'll talk a little more about that. I actually have a topic here. I was assigned a topic, actually, to talk. And then, so, so once I heard a, a Dharma teacher pose the question, it was really a rhetorical question, are we teaching Buddhism or are we teaching mindfulness? The idea being that it was really the mindfulness what was important, not so much this religion, Buddhism. Um, there's actually, there may be many other possibilities too, but there's at least one other that I thought of besides Buddhism and besides mindfulness. The Buddha was teaching a path mm, a way of dealing with or maybe a solution to this human condition. It was sometimes called a liberation or a deliverance, or sometimes we use the word enlightenment. So we do talk about Buddhism. I happen to find it interesting. Some people do and some don't. Um, It can be interesting just for its own sake, and there are people who are Buddhist scholars who aren't practitioners and aren't necessarily interested in putting the teachings into practice, they just find it interesting to learn about it. So they engage in Buddhism in whatever way uh, is working for whatever their goal is. And then uh, same thing with mindfulness. We teach mindfulness. Uh, It's foundational to the Buddhist path, so it's a big deal in Buddhism. It's very important. And just for its own sake might be one level we engage with mindfulness. But also, it can be taught as part of a path leading to something beyond mindfulness. Because mindfulness is not liberation. Whatever, whatever we think liberation means, it's a different. Mindfulness is a conditioned state. It comes and goes. We can develop it. We can cultivate it. It's not the same thing as this ultimate goal that the Buddha was pointing to. Um, I think it's important for us to consider from time to time what it is we want when we engage in the Dharma or in this practice. And, um, you know, it varies for all of us. And also it changes over time and, um, you know, from day to day even sometimes. Some of us 
might have this idea of enlightenment, some sense of what that might be, and it might be something that appeals to us or that we think would be a good idea or it would be something attractive. And for others, you know, we might not relate to that concept at all. Um, and maybe we're engaged in this uh, practice that maybe we want something else out of it. Maybe a little less stress in our lives or just to make our lives work better. And one of the beauties about the way the Buddha taught and the way I hope that we teach the Dharma is that there's no should. And personally, I think that there's, shouldn't, there's not even a hierarchy of which is a better goal. We just need to look and see for each of us what we want. But we need to be careful when we do that. Sometimes we confuse going after one thing thinking it's going to give us what we want, but actually it's not the really the most skillful or wise approach to take for what we ultimately want. Um, even though I only know maybe a few people here uh, today, you know, one thing I know about all of us is we all want the same thing, which is we want to be okay, we want to be happy, we want life to work. That's it. Right? It's hard to do, even a simple goal, like just wanting to be okay. You know, sometimes we're okay and sometimes not, not but um, even that's not so easy. Um, but we all want to be happy is one way to think about it. And uh, even when we do the metta, the loving-kindness practice, some of the phrases we'll use, one of them is, you know, may all beings be happy. We use this word happiness. Um, The Buddha actually used that word in two different ways. And I think we confuse them. and We go back and forth in the ways that we use the word happiness. Uh, There's the conditional happiness, which is what we normally all think of when we use the word happiness, which is feel happy. (laughs) In other words, there's a certain types of feelings or experiences we can have and we have this conditional happiness, and there's a whole other range of experiences and feelings that it's not okay to have, right? I mean, it sounds kind of silly to say it, but if we're depressed, we don't have happiness. We've got to have the feeling of happiness. So that's this conditional level of happiness. And the Buddha talked about those. He gave lots of talks on how to achieve that kind of happiness. But then there's this other type that he pointed to, which was the unconditional And that was the happiness that's not dependent on the experience, but it's to be found within any experience. That's more pointing to that liberation, which is um, it's more about the relationship we can have with any experience. So can the mind and the heart be free even if the situation um, might be unpleasant? So we're not... The happiness is unconditional because it's not dependent upon condition on life looking a particular way, but it is more our way of being in the midst of life as it is in each moment. We talk like this all the time. This is here, this kind of um, way of talking about uh, the Dharma. 
mindfulness practice that we uh, talk about so much, the beauty of it is, is that it works for whichever level of happiness we're, we're going for. It's a real key. No matter how we want to work with the Dharma. If experience gets too strong, there's a line. And if experience crosses that line, it's too much for us. We can't work with it. We're caught, right? If something becomes too painful, wherever that line is, it's it's not appropriate to talk about working with it mindfully. We're crushed by it. It's way too much. If experience is on this side of the line, we can work with it. So uh, when we're talking about happiness, there's no should here. Nobody's saying we should be mindful. We should work with it. We should learn to be present with what's going on. We just have to acknowledge if the experience has crossed the line, it's beyond our ability to work with it then nobody's saying you should. It's gone too far, and we all have a line. Those are the times we just have to acknowledge we're going to suffer. Right? When it's too much, then it's too much. Right? So then it doesn't make sense to talk about working on some kind of unconditional happiness. Right? So if you're in, for example, say you're in extreme poverty and it's just a real struggle to survive and the creditors are calling and the electricity is being shut off and you don't have enough food for your children, it doesn't make sense. And in fact, it's disrespectful to say to that person, well, the problem is you just need to let, learn how to be present with what is. You're, you're just clinging. You need to let go. It's not the experience. It's your inability to be mindful and free in the midst of that experience. That doesn't, that doesn't work. In that case, you need to work on the conditional level. The, people, the person needs food. They've got to get the heat turned on in the house. You've got to take care of business. It's in the world of the conditional. But that's the level that's appropriate to pay attention to in that moment. Maybe later, when we're freed up from some of those uh, problems and difficulties, it might be more appropriate to work more towards the unconditional. You know, If you're in Rwanda and whatever, you know, the Hutus are coming in and massacring your village... You just don't say, well, don't cling, right? It's stupid. They need safety. So there's an appropriate place to pay attention to both the conditional and the unconditional. And so part of the art is knowing uh, when we need to take care of business on one level and when we need to take care of business on the other level. right? And sometimes I think where we tend to get into trouble is 
we should be, we, we, we're paying attention on one and we really should be paying attention on the other. So if we always think the way to go for our happiness is to, um, you know, tilt life in one way as opposed to another, to set up our situation to look a certain way, and we're never willing to look at our way of being in the midst of life, then we're always at the effect of our world. And we're a little out of balance. The other way to get out of balance is if we think that we don't pay attention at all to taking care of ourselves and our situations in the world. And you know, we only think, well, I just should be present with whatever is. I think it's a setup for suffering. A number of years ago, I sat a retreat with my daughter. She, she was 17, and she was sitting her first 10-day retreat. So I was real excited to sit this retreat with her. And um, several weeks before, I injured my neck, and I was in a lot of pain. And it was very, very intense pain. It was also this shooting, kind of radiating nerve down the nerve. So it was not only the intensity, but the quality of it was just some of you who've ever had... Those kind of things. It just—it was awful. I just couldn't be with it, and there was no position that I could sit or lie in that alleviated the pain. And also, um, pain medicine didn't work. It was pretty awful. Right? So normally, I would have just canceled the retreat, but uh, I wanted to sit with my daughter, so I decided, all right, I'm going to go to the retreat, and I'll just sit and just. Be present with what is. And so there's the pain. I'm just going to just go into the pain. <laughs> it wasn't even close. <laughs> it was a joke. I couldn't be with this pain. It wasn't even close. It was way past the line. So I was in a lot of suffering for a few days. And finally, um, I talked to one of the teachers and he said, um, well, why don't you lie down? You know, you think I could have thought of that myself, but I was caught in this should. I'm, I should be present with this. He said, well, you taking any pain medicine? You know, you should, you should be lying down. Go go back and take a nap and, put, you know, put, get an ice pack. And you know. So I just changed my whole relationship with it and got out of the should. I wasn't going to be able to work with it. What I needed was to find a way, what was wise and skillful in that moment, was to find a way to be able to step back from it, to get some relief. So in that case, it didn't make sense to talk about being mindfully aware, to work with mindfulness there. So we want to be careful when we talk about bringing mindful awareness. But if we're on this side of the line, within the realm where we can work, Now we're in the area where we actually have some choice. And it's on that side of the line that we can start bringing this mindfulness to meet whatever experience is going on. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Actually, if you look in the Pali English Dictionary, the definition of the word... The word for mindfulness in Pali is sati, S-A-T-I, sati. If you look up sati in the Pali English Dictionary, 
it gives several definitions. Intentness of mind, wakefulness of mind, mindfulness, alertness, lucidity of mind, self-possession, conscious, self-consciousness. Get kind of the feeling there. And if you look up the etymology of the word, it refers you to another word, sarati, which means memory or to remember. So it's not talking about memory as, as in a memory of something that happened. It's actually to remember in the moment. <clears throat> sometimes we use the word, I think we get sloppy sometimes in how we use language. We'll say awareness and mindfulness. I don't know if they get it used interchangeably that much, but sometimes. But they're not the same thing. An analogy that I, um, I think works pretty well is if you've ever been to a movie, a really great movie, they were totally sucked into it, just lost in it, completely forgot yourself. You weren't in the, you didn't realize you were in a theater. You're just really kind of, there's almost a, an absorption or merging into it. You're just lost. There's awareness there. There's no mindfulness. Right? If you wake up and realize, oh, I'm in a movie. I'm watching a movie. You're back to yourself. The experience is still there. You haven't lost the experience of the movie or any emotions you're having or anything, but you've added this mindfulness ingredient there. And I think an analogy like that points to um, the power, uh, the real efficacy of what mindfulness has to offer us. When we're lost, there's no freedom or choice. We're just at the effect. We're on automatic. We're in reaction to just the habit and conditioning of our minds. It's in those moments of wakefulness and mindfulness that we start to have choice. It's only then that we have some freedom. I'm sure most of you, maybe everyone here, has heard the meditation instructions of, for example, if you start with the breath. And we'll say, you know, be with the breath, mindful, however we give the instructions. And then when you're, if you've gotten lost in thought or daydreaming, when you wake up, instructions to come back and begin again. What's the instruction for when you're gone? There's no instruction. You're gone. (laughs) You don't even talk about. There's no choice. There's awareness. There's a flow of experience, but you're just gone. And it's not a problem. When we're gone, we'll just be gone. We don't have to struggle about it. You can't do anything anyway. But we just have to know that in those times, that's when we need a lot of compassion because depending on the situation and depending on the habit of mind, our conditioning, we're just going to be in a reaction, whatever that reaction is for each of us. So the potential for suffering is really ripe there. 
when there's the mindfulness, we have some choice. We start to have some freedom. Freeing the mind from conditioning is the key towards this liberation, this unconditional that the Buddha was talking about. It's first starting to recondition the mind in in new ways so we're not just in reaction to everything. And then ultimately actually getting free from our conditioning altogether is what's really being pointed to. To find the place where there's no... Freed from everything that keeps us um, disconnected or for anything that limits us in any way. Uh, one way I've thought of the word stress is it's the gap between the experience in the moment, what's actually real and true, and our ability to be free and present. The further that gap is, the wider the gap between what's true and our ability to be free in the midst of what's true, the more we we have stress. So one way to think about this practice is we're just trying to narrow the gap. Close the gap so that we can actually be free and awake and happy less dependent on life having to look some certain way. I don't know what's ultimately possible, but I know, and I know many of you also know, that we certainly can become more free in more situations over time. And we can probably all look back at our lives and certain things that maybe we couldn't work with at all at some point, maybe now you can look at it and say, well, you know, that's not so much a problem in my life now. I can be with that. I can work with that. I can be more free in the midst of it. Right? The line has moved in that. And there'll be other situations in which, nope, can't do it. You know, When that happens, it's crossed the line. I can't be there. Now, there's a couple of levels also that we can work with mindfulness on. Levels is probably not a good way to say it because it it implies a hierarchy, and I don't want to imply that at all because what I'm about to say, there's not a better or worse. I'm not just saying that to sort of be politically correct because we don't want to judge. Really, truly, um, it's not a better than. It goes back to um, getting clear about what we want. And nobody can say what each of us should want. So for each of us, there's a way to work with mindfulness on whatever level or for whatever we want. One other thing about wanting. Sometimes we confuse wanting something and wanting to want something. That's the difference. A few people look puzzled. (laughs) Well, an example is... In my earlier years of meditation, there would be times when I suffered a lot because, you know, I wanted to meditate, I wanted to be meditating, but I just, it was hard to do it, to find the time, you know, life fills in, 
And we have to acknowledge that it is hard, probably for all of us. You know, it's not an easy thing to do to live in the world and have a life. That's why people sometimes go off into monasteries, because it's just hard to do in daily life. We, we teach uh, meditation in a couple of the prisons down at Soledad. There are two state prisons down there. We have some pretty very active programs going on. So I was talking to one guy. There had been a, um, a riot on one of the yards. Uh, I think it was the blacks and the Hispanics fighting. So all the blacks and Hispanics got locked down for a couple of months. And they only got out of their cells to go take a shower twice a week. That was it. They were fed in their cells. They didn't leave their cells for two months. So after they got out, I was talking to one guy. Hey, how are you doing? How's it been? He says, well, you know, it's going okay. I said, how's your meditation practice? I happen to know he was really into it. He said, it was tough. You know, it was just hard to find the time and to make myself meditate. (laughs) He didn't have a lot to do, but, you know. (laughs) So... And we're all laughing because we can all relate to that. So I thought that was really great. And it just shows, yeah, you know what? It's just hard. So we can actually remove one whole level of suffering, I think, if we can. It's not that we surrender to it, but we um, just acknowledge it's a hard thing. I think, I'm not totally sure about this, but I think we can tell what we want by just looking at what we're doing. So if I want to meditate, but I end up, I don't know, watching the football game or whatever I go do, what I really wanted to do was watch the football game. I wanted to want to meditate, (laughs) but I really wanted to watch the football game. If I wanted to meditate, I'd be meditating. Um, So getting clear on what we want... And then how can we engage mindfully? How can we use the mindfulness in service of that? Well, as we said, if if what we want, forgetting about enlightenment, if what we want is maybe to have a little less stress in our lives and sort of learn to kind of calm down, or to look at other areas of our lives when we're in reaction and we're just trying to get a little more freedom, be in less reaction, um, just to make our lives work better. So that's one way, one level or one way we want to work. We've already said when we're lost, we we don't have any freedom. So we can see just by bringing mindfulness into daily life, the more times we're mindful in that moment, we're more free. I was just talking with someone a few days ago and um, helping someone write a resume and they were doing something. We're just talking and Somehow, and just in the course of the conversation, I said, I didn't really mean anything. I just said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Just about that same tone of voice. Well, they just flipped like I was yelling at them and criticizing them. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way, but I didn't have any charge about it at all. I just was saying, it just sort of came out in the natural flow of the conversation. Oh, no, don't do it that way, do it this way. Well, to them, there was a lot of criticism. So we talked about it. And... Um, you know, maybe I could have said it a different way. Maybe they, they didn't realize, though, their piece was they didn't realize in the moment that when they heard the criticism, that was what was real. They didn't see that, because there's another level to, to just be fully awake and mindful. No, oh, this person said something. Oh, I noticed that criticism is not really a feeling, but I don't want to get into that part. You know, it's an interpretation. But 
I notice I'm feeling criticized. There's a reaction, right? That would have given a lot more freedom in the moment than just being at the effect and being in reaction. So we can see that as we cultivate the mindfulness in the daily life, that's one level that in the moment we can start to be more free. Every moment like that of mindfulness and freedom reconditions the mind or you know, it changes the habit, our habit a little, so we're a little less reactive in that area. But it doesn't get to the underlying seeds of conditioning that are there, ready to sprout when the, when the situation, the conditions, all the causes and conditions come together just right to trigger us again, and we're hooked. So the mindfulness on daily life stays kind of on a surface level. That's one level. We need to take it deeper if we want to dig up those seeds. The seeds are the potential to still get caught, to still suffer. And it's just up to us how much digging we want to do. The more of those seeds are, are, are removed, that's the more areas that don't hook us anymore. In order to do that, to go deeper, the mindfulness, and we need to bring in a piece along to support the mindfulness, which is the concentration piece, the samadhi concentration. See, vipassana meditation and mindfulness practice are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. They're close. They're close. And mindfulness is so important in Vipassana practice that sometimes we use the, we, t- we talk about mindfulness practice and Vipassana interchangeably. Uh, traditionally, Vipassana is actually the mindfulness practice and the concentration coming together. And it's that, and the stronger our concentration, we're, um, the deeper we're able to go, bringing the mindfulness with it. Right? And that's how we can go in deeper. I think one of the reasons that in certain circles the concentration doesn't get talked about maybe as much. There's several reasons. One is just with using the mindfulness practice, it develops concentration. But another reason is that some people have gotten into trouble when they want to develop concentration, they want to get somewhere because they're starting with an aversion to where they are. I don't, this isn't okay. I don't want to be here. I've got to get there. And so there's already a gap that's been developed. Anytime we're trying to get anywhere out of aversion, once again, it's a setup for suffering. No matter what we want to cultivate within ourselves on any level, it has to start with self-acceptance. And... This practice, I would suggest that one way to think about the Dharma is it's a path of radical self-acceptance. Okay. 
We always start with just what is real and true here and now in this moment. Right? And then what is wise and skillful for moving forward. Developing mindfulness and developing concentration is wise and skillful. So we can move forward and start developing it, but not out of that aversion like it's not okay to not be mindful and not be concentrated. So if we can start from that point, then we can work hard on our practice. Where we get into trouble is we think there's a, we have this idea of how concentrated we're supposed to be. And when we're not there... Um, I have a very good friend who was a serious Dharma practitioner for many years, spent years in Asia, done a lot of meditation practice, completely stopped all Dharma practice, just not even in the Dharma world, wouldn't just out of it. Not into Buddhism, not into meditation, not into Dharma. And we've had a lot of talks about it. She just suffers when she sits down to meditate. That super ego, which is that critical mind, just kicks in gear. And there's this big supposed to and should. And if she's having what we would call a bad meditation, we're not supposed to judge these things, right? But let's be honest about it. We're going to judge. And we're going to suffer when we do, but we do. So when she has what a bad, and what's a bad meditation? (laughs) Whatever. Body hurts, not concentrated, sloth and torpor. It's just, you know, whatever. Mind's going crazy. What's a good meditation? Whatever it is for you. You There's a certain experience we're having that we call good meditation. You know, peaceful, deep. Maybe you have these experiences of oneness or interconnection and whatever's going to happen. Mindfulness is strong. That would be a good meditation. And you know, it's funny in those good meditations, have you ever had the time when it's really, you don't want the bell to ring, oh, you just want a few more minutes. <laughs> ever ever done that in a bad meditation? Oh, my back's killing me. My knee's going to fall off. Um, can't concentrate. I'm in hell. You know, I think I'll just sit with this for a few more minutes. <laughs> I don't want the belter. No. So we want to have this experience enough. Anyway, so she was really suffering so much that she felt that the Dharma was actually leading her to more suffering. And it wasn't helping to say, well, um, you know, don't strive so much. It just So she needed to work on a different level. Sometimes I think, you know, you'll hear some criticism for some aspects as the Dharma is coming to the West that we think maybe it's getting diluted or watered down or we're losing something. Sometimes, if you haven't heard this, don't worry about it. But if you, <laughs> <laughs> but if you have heard this, sometimes we'll, 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 um, right, we'll say, well, you know, in the West it's turning into another psychological technique or a way to make us feel better, but we're losing the part about the deliverance, the liberation, the real freedom that the Buddha was talking about. And I do think there's a real danger there, but also I think that I've been one of those people, actually, to make that criticism, and um, I'm changing about it. 
I think lately I've been thinking that's maybe not uh, a little too simplistic. That yes, if we lose the I, if all we're trying to do is get the conditional happiness, so we teach meditation so that we can you know, have an edge on life, be more calm, peaceful, more centered. That's great. But if that's all we're doing, yes, we have lost something. But remember, this is a middle path. If we go too much towards having to get enlightened, once again, we can come out of an aversion to just being whatever I am. And it's a setup for suffering, and we're in a stress, like I've got to get here and I'm not getting this. So we get too goal-oriented. So maybe we need to go back the other way and have practices that enable us to really just work with life and with ourselves as we are. I've been starting more to teach um, and help assist teaching in some more retreats. And um, I mean, I knew what I'm about to say. I knew this from my own practice, but I didn't realize how much it happens for everyone else. You know, how many people are shocked to go on retreat thinking that they're going to get peaceful, calm, deep, and as soon as you take away all the external distractions and sit down, all their just inner demons come roaring up and they're in hell. Despair, anger, sadness, fear, memories of abuse. I mean, um, and maybe just struggling with this. And it's just like, it's not supposed to be this way. Well, when that's happening, what is needed in that moment here? If that's what's real, we don't want to have this judgment of, well, it's not supposed to do this. Well, you must, not, you must be one of those ones who's kind of psychologically messed up. Go do some therapy for a few years until you get good enough to be able to sit quietly and calmly so then you can really work on samadhi. <laughs> right? No, it's not like this. It's a path of radical self-acceptance, what's real and true in the moment. If we sit down to meditate and, that, and we have the times when maybe we're not caught by these strong forces. Yeah, maybe we're working on the samadhi, the mindfulness. If we sit down and you're just filled with anger, okay, how do we work with that? And that's one of the things I think is merely a strength because it's turning out that a lot of us here in the West have a lot of work to do in those areas. And a lot of people have suffered going to Asia when... You know, it's a different paradigm over there. And so a lot of the teachers there who have deep realization and enlightenment or were completely unequipped to deal with these Westerners coming over here from a completely different framework, different way of being. And so people would get really in a lot of suffering. You know, they're, they're about to crack. And the teacher's saying, well, did you note it? You know, <laughs> did you note it? And, you know, because it's crossed that line of what can be dealt with. They need to really be able to deal with it. So I think it's real important um, to just acknowledge that there's all these tools in our toolkit so we don't have to lose sight of the liberation teaching. Let's not lose that. But let's also get the radical self-acceptance going. And when those come together, then we can move forward, but really out of a deeper place in ourselves. We end at quarter till? Okay. Well, I wanted to say something about one other topic, but I'll just mention it very briefly. 
since we brought up this thing of mindful of, of vipassana being this um, coming together, this merging of, of samadhi and sati, of concentration and mindfulness. You know, some people will teach Vipassana so that you particularly want to stay only on a certain level of concentration. You just don't want to go very deep, and it'll be taught that way. And the deep concentration is viewed as kind of being a hindrance. There's another, uh, other ways it gets taught where you really spend a lot of time developing this certain kind of concentration. It's um, called samatha practice. What they do, you'll hear the term jhanas. Some of you know about jhanas. And you, know, you get this real deep concentration, then you'll switch over to Vipassana. And traditionally, that's been done a lot. Those are both approaches that work depending on just what's working for each person. And then there's a third that doesn't get talked about so much that I'm personally interested in. I used to think that that jhana kind of practice was kind of a hindrance. And you had to really hold back on the samadhi because you'd go off into this other fixed concentration. But, you know, Joseph Goldstein was very helpful about this. He was said, no, 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 you don't hold back the concentration. Just bring the samadhi up to meet it. I mean, you bring the sati, the mindfulness, up to meet it. And so it's a place where, where the, the distinction is dissolved and um, the two are working, are both strong. So we can build them both uh at the same time, just starting where we're at. And as the concentration deepens, we keep the mindfulness up with it and just let it run. And then all those same jhanic factors it, um, are still there within the changing experience in the Vipassana. And that's when I've found that it kind of gets, starts to get interesting. So they come together. So there's kind of three ways maybe you can approach it. Not worrying about this concentration stuff and just working with the mindfulness. Really getting into this deep, deep concentration, this samatha practice, and then switch over to mindfulness. And there's also a third way where they can actually grow quite deeply together. That, that's the have your cake and eat it too. Uh, one. So, so there's three that I think of. Um, and I think that the, the thing that's important about that is, is that The reason I was uh, drawn to mention this is because I know that some people here, when um, uh, Sayadaw uh, Pawak was here recently, I know there's a number of people getting very interested in his teachings, and I had a chance to spend some time with him myself, and I really, uh, I don't do his particular style of practice, but I really, he was great. <laughs> and I think there are people these days who are getting very interested in doing this deep samatha practice of this deep samadhi practice, which I really think is going to deepen a lot of people's practice. It's going to be really, really um, helpful for a lot of people. But I also know that there will be some people who will really have a lot of suffering around it because their minds aren't going to, they're not going to get into those deep concentration states. And I personally know a number of people have gotten in, into suffering around it. So I just wanted to kind of point out that while we're developing samadhi, if that's what you want to do, there's all these different approaches that works, and we get back to not taking ourselves out of the present. And for those who aren't doing this samadhi practice, 
to not think that that's less than because I'm supposed to be doing that and I'm just doing a different kind of mindfulness practice. That they all, and the Buddha talked about all of them explicitly. That's why there's plenty of uh, canonical evidence. If you go into the suttas for whichever side you take, you can back it up because there's the Buddha talking. So it's finding what works. I just felt like I wanted to say that I was talking to Gil about Powak in particular. Uh, Some of you won't know what I'm talking about and don't worry about it, but I I really had a conversation. I thought, you know, it's going to deepen for a lot of people and also there's going to be people suffering. So I just kind of wanted to throw that in at the end. Um, So we need to end, but just quickly, any comment? I kind of went into a number of different things. Comment, question? Yeah. Well, you were talking in the beginning about these things that you just can't deal with. Right. You know, they're kind of past your line. Certainly there are people and there are practices that are done purposefully where you take people beyond that line. For example, if you're, if you're in a prison camp and you're in a situ- or, you're, or you're in a situation like you're hiding and if you move to go to the bathroom, Right. You're going to be dead. Right. And you can learn to control your mind or right. control your body. Do you think, I mean, is that ever a valuable practice or does it just hurt people? Oh, yeah. Well, that? no, that's a great question. And so I would say it this way. Take an example, same kind of thing. Say you're sitting in meditation and the body really starts to hurt and the pain gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, right? Maybe it's knee pain. There is a point. See, there's a gray area there. There's the place we're on, sort of this side of the line, and we're able to work with it even though it's unpleasant. There's definitely going to be a place on the, we all know, where the pain could get so strong that we've lost it. We just crumble. But it's not a fixed line, and, it's, and there's a gray area. So sometimes we're really on the side of the line where we can work with something And so by starting to push it a little bit, we start to find where our edge is. And I think it can be valuable. And to find out, oh, you know, I am. And we learn and we grow. And it makes the line shift and move out a little bit. So it can be useful. No question about it. Once again, as as a middle path, if we get out of balance, we get into the, um, you know, the John Wayne macho approach. And then we're kind of in some stress and struggling there, and then we've gone too far, maybe. On the other hand, if we have to move the instant there's ever any discomfort, then we never learn any uh, facility or skillfulness or ability to work with the difficulties. So I think we play with it a little bit. And what will happen is when we're doing this work, you know, sometimes we'll work with it, and then we find we've crossed over the line. Okay, we crossed over the line. We suffer. And we'll kind of come back. Does, is that okay? What do you so, think? I mean, you know, if you think about the way that you, someone who's been abused, yeah. they often learn to deal with stuff that other people couldn't imagine being able to sit still and deal with it. Right. And there's sort of a model of saying, well, that person's mind is messed up at that point. They can deal with it. And yet it seems like sometimes what... Meditators can do, you might hear about Buddhists who've been put in prison and been tortured for years and years and they live through it. And so it seems like it isn't necessarily 
Oh, right. But I think I want to be careful. I'm not a therapist. And also, for example, I would think in a room this size, there may be people who've had abuse in their childhood. Okay. So I want to be real careful about this and, and acknowledge this is an area I don't know some things about. But just as an example, sometimes, so if I say this wrong, I just, just give me a break here. Um, if there could be a way where you learn to be present something with something, like you say, with a meditator, maybe can be present with something, and you still, you're, it, there's not a shutting down or a, or a disconnect that happens. We're able to really be present with it. There could be something, and that's my sense, maybe if there's been strong abuse, I don't think it necessarily always has to be, but you, this is kind of the way I think it, I hear about it is, is maybe persons learn to deal because um, they've learned to shut off or disconnect from or disassociate from something. It's still a coping mechanism. So it was probably what was needed to survive. It's not a judgment about it. If they didn't do it, who knows? Maybe they would have gone crazy. I don't know. So they, they learned to do that. But it wasn't really a way of being present. It was a way of disconnecting from. And that was what was needed then. Right? So it's a difference. So maybe you can... I don't know. It's a different mechanism. It might be a different way of dealing with the same situation. And what disconnecting does, it keeps us safe or happy or whatever because we don't experience this thing. There's one thing can be be free because it's not arising, happy because it's not arising, and another is, is that the seeds for it to even arise aren't there. Or when it does arise... My freedom isn't that it didn't arise. My freedom is that I'm able to. It's not a problem. So it's a lot of different levels. And I think it's complex. Are you okay? Can we just leave it at that? Is that going to be all right? All right. So let me say this. We've actually gone past the time. And um, uh, well, let me say this. Here's what we're going to do. You had a question, so we'll do that one last question, and we're going to end. And if you need, and we'll, we'll be done in five minutes, but if you need to leave... I mean, really, just you know, just get up and leave, and it's not a big deal. And don't feel funny about it. Yes, and we'll be done in five minutes anyway. Yes. So this will be um, very short metta, just to end, for those who would like. And um, 
So I just would invite you to um, to just get in any the most comfortable position that your body will allow. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Loving kindness. You know, we we use these these words. It's a Pali word. You'll hear it a lot. Metta. It's M-E-T-T-A. Metta. We translate it as loving kindness. Buddha, the Buddha taught the Vipassana would fall under a category of what's called a wisdom practice. Um, but he taught these other kind of practices about, and we talk about this Vipassana as, as you know, self-acceptance, being with what is. Metta, loving kindness, is actually cultivating specific states of the mind and heart. And that was also taught. So to uh, invite you to just, um, as comfortable as your body would allow, you don't have to be in any fancy position. And then um, just to take a moment to uh, allow your awareness to connect in, if it has not been, to connect in with the body. And also any emotions, any energies, just the mind, the heart, the body, and just to see what's there. And just can you just rest there with yourself, with your experience, without having to do anything with it? So that's that starting with that self-acceptance. And if, if, it's, if you're not able to be present with whatever you find in yourself then to send a little metta for that. Even for the part of you that that can't accept. Well, maybe we can step back, have a little acceptance for that. And that that self-acceptance is an act of, uh, of great compassion for ourselves. And then from that space, you can start to actively send loving kindness to yourself. And you can use, um, it can just be a sense. It's basically, it's just a a wish for your own well-being. Or even if you don't have a the experience of loving kindness, it could just be, uh, you can just repeat a phrase. It's like a prayer. Even something simple, you know, we always use the same simple phrases. May I be happy. Just to send that wish to yourself. May I be peaceful. May I be safe from inner and outer harm. May I be free from suffering. And you could spend as much time as you wanted in your own practice to do that. Um, But just in the interest of time, um, for those who would like, you you can stay sending metta to yourself or you can now switch and, and... 
extend that same metta out to, to uh, everyone here in the meditation hall. Just as I wish to be happy, may everyone here be happy. Just as I wish to be free from suffering, may everyone here be free from suffering. And then you can continue with that, or if you would like, you can now expand um, your awareness out beyond the meditation hall, out into the community and just into the world. And just radiating this unconditional wish, good wishes for all beings. So it doesn't leave out, it's not based on our judgments about them. It's just, a, it's, it's, it's like the sun doesn't, shine on some and not on others, or the rain doesn't discriminate with who it falls on, who it doesn't. We send this metta out in all directions to all beings, wishing may all beings be happy. May all beings uh, be free from suffering. And then... Uh, this short ending prayer from the Metta Sutta, which is a discourse uh, the Buddha gave on, on loving kindness. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings. Have a good afternoon, everyone.